0: Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And so today, uh, if you've been looking at the stock market, Plat is at an all-time high. Plat is the uh, platform ETF. It's Wisdom Tree's growth fund, their primary growth fund. Uh, we worked with them on it. It launched um, May of 2019. And Plat is just is just on fire. It's up almost three percent today. When it opened in in uh in May of 2019, it opened right around $25 a share. Um, so you can see, you know, it dipped in in the low 20s in uh in mid-March when you know, right after Corona started to hit. And um, it has just been on a tear ever since. You know, a lot of this is being led by uh Big tech monopolies. We've, you know, we cover them a lot on the show. Um, but you have Facebook hitting an all-time high today. You have uh, Salesforce going bonkers today. You have um, Slack uh, way up today. And so it's just, you know, it's it's it's, uh, it's just the the general theme that we talk about on the show, right? Once you hit this platform conglomerate status. And Wisdom Tree rebalanced the ETF uh, in July, so there were about eighty uh, public platform stocks in it. And then, and then, going into August, they rebalanced it to have about fifty-one. Um, and <clears throat> basically, the uh, you know the, what the rebalance did is it 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 put more of an emphasis on platform conglomerate stocks, so slightly larger platforms that, you know, might not just have one platform business, but they might have multiple platform businesses. And as we've talked about on the show, once you hit that kind of platform conglomerate status, that is really when you start to see uh, an, an exponential amount of compounding of these network effects. Not only does the, do the network effects in your primary platform business, you know, on, on, on the demand and on the supply side, help each other. But now you can channel those network effects from one platform business into an adjacent platform business, and that is kind of the holy grail, or that is one of the holy grails when you really get this, you know, this kind of critical mass, this this market dominant position in in a key uh, platform business vertical. Right. Nice little chart here on Wisdom Tree's site. Platts up about thirty five percent year to date. Right. So since inception. Oh, it's up 50%. So if you'd put $10,000 in this thing back in May of 2019, you'd have $15,000. I mean, yikes. Um, Which means, you know, if you can deduce from that, basically from May 2019 through the end of 2019, Platt was up basically 15%, right? And it's up, you know, 35% this year. Um, So it's just unstoppable. And is this going to continue? You can bet you it's going to continue i can't speak for what's going on in the broader stock market and the fed just printing money uh literally just adding zeros to to their balance sheet um they've got the best app in the world it's called the we print money with a button app um but you know outside of those issues uh all things kind of remaining the same do do we think that platform business stocks these dominant tech monopoly stocks. You know what's going to stop them? It's not going to be regulation. We've covered that bunch on the show. Regulation's not doing anything to these things. When you have incumbent businesses, and Platt is very diversified. Platts in, you know, Platts in the travel industry. Platts in the hospitality industry. You know, Platts actually the only industry Platts not in is energy. Um, there really aren't any platform businesses in energy. But basically, every other industry, Platt has. Uh, representation and diversification in it. So that means that, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing booking.com and Expedia come back. You're seeing LendingTree come back. Right. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of stocks that were hurt uh because of COVID and uh, kind of on a sector basis, um, you're seeing those relevant platform stocks in those sectors that have been damaged, hospitality and travel, restaurants, right? Like Yelp is in it. Um you're seeing those businesses recover and bounce back much faster than the kind of linear incumbent equivalent, like hotels, for example, or airlines. Um, So they're asset light. they, they, They sink less when there's a dip and they bounce back faster. That's kind of everything you would want, right? And to add more fuel to the fire, what we're seeing is that because You know, because COVID has just had such a wholesale acceleration of digital behavior, that plays to the favor of the tech monopolies. And because, you know, these by definition are digital businesses, they are able to continue to invest in growth and are able to continue to double down. And actually, when a lot of kind of traditional incumbents are challenged um, in today's times, these businesses, these platform uh, tech monopoly businesses, can double down on growth. We've seen Facebook do that. Facebook is Facebook is going absurd today. Um, so, you know, a lot of this is yeah. Facebook's up. Facebook's up five percent over two hundred ninety dollars a share. I mean, a month ago, yeah, they were at like two forty, end of July. So um, that brings me to my next topic, because do you remember, this was in, uh, what, June, July, yeah, early July. Remember when Facebook was gonna get canceled? Cancel culture was coming after Facebook? Yeah, here's this video. The supply side is so vast and so big, you can never get enough of the supply to all agree to simultaneously strike. Only regulation is the way to actually truly affect some kind of external change upon the tech monopolies. You know, I spoke, I think maybe on the last episode about cancel culture, not being able to work on tech monopolies. Why can't cancel culture work on tech monopolies? Because they are monopolies, which means that they are immune to like a strike. I knew there was no way cancel culture would hurt Facebook. I bought the dip. I actually talked about buying the dip on the show buying the dip worked out for me because you can't cancel a monopoly. It's not going to work. It's just, it, I mean, it's kind of comical. Um, it's kind of obvious, but everyone was all up in arms, Facebook this, Facebook that. Oh, we're going to bring down, we're going to have a, a boycott of Facebook, all of the biggest brands and all these ad agencies who hate Facebook. Basically, all these companies hate Facebook. Ad agencies loathe Facebook. Brands, also, hate Facebook. Why do brands hate Facebook? Because Facebook makes it super easy for direct to consumer uh, small product companies that compete very aggressively with these big, um, you know, meaty brands, got a lot of fat on that bone, a lot of margin in all that marketing spend. Facebook devours and makes a much more competitive environment for big CPG brands. Facebook also has destroyed the ad agency business. The entire industry is in deep trouble. So you have both of both of these parties that have very deep rooted animosity towards Facebook. It's kind of like you know uh, a, a necessary evil. They can't get around Facebook because it's a monopoly and it controls half the digital ad spend on the internet. Similarly, these companies also hate Google, um, but they have to use it because they can't do anything else. So the moment strikes. Um, I'm you know I'm not saying these are disingenuous. I'm sure they had legitimate gripes against Facebook. But you know, I felt like they they thought that they would you know be able to actually do harm to Facebook and try to unseat Facebook's stranglehold on digital advertising. And lo and behold, they weren't able to make a dent. Um, They were able to cause some commotion on the stock price, but when you actually look at Facebook's earnings, that's why the the stock is going crazy right now. Um, And their performance didn't make a difference. We we spoke about that on the show. We called that on the show many times. Uh, And it's not surprising in the slightest, frankly. So Facebook's just going to keep chugging along. Facebook actually, compared to Google, when you listen to their CEOs, Zuckerberg versus Sundar, Zuckerberg actually has been much more bullish on saying that he's going to continue to really aggressively invest in growth, where Sundar was kind of a little bit more uh, tepid, oddly. Um, on that front. So, you know, if anything, Facebook has kind of seen, all right, Facebook's moving into commerce. They're doing deals with Shopify. They're trying to, you know, they're investing in Geo in India, right? Like Facebook is chugging, chugging along. Right? They're making their little TikTok competitor and and helping to get TikTok banned in the in the rest of the free world. Um so, you know, Zuckerberg's keeping busy. Good for Zucky. So next thing, we got a few IPOs coming up. Let me start with what is Ant? Ant is now basically the size of PayPal or MasterCard. They are a, 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 a payment platform, a financial services platform. They have multiple platform conglomerate, platform conglomerate Ant. Um, doing a dual listing in, I think, Shanghai and uh, Hong Kong. Ant was started by Alibaba. What does that mean? So Alibaba, you know, if you go all the way back to Alibaba Genesis, Alibaba has, still does, multiple product marketplace businesses. The way Alibaba beat eBay, eBay um, was charging seller fees, right? You're a, a, a buyer, particularly for like B2B product selling, but you know, a variety of things. You want to buy stuff from say a Chinese manufacturer in China and you got eBay. Um, well, you know, these Chinese manufacturers and suppliers, they like to haggle, eh? And they like to communicate. Well, that doesn't work well in eBay's product marketplace model where they charge you a fee on the transaction, right? That kind of presents a problem because otherwise now you can have what we call platform leakage. And platform leakage means, well, the, the buyer and the seller, they communicate and then they say, hey, well, I'll just transact off platform and cut the platform out of its fee. No good for eBay, So what Alibaba did is they said, hey, uh, buyers and sellers, we're not going to charge any fees for three years. It's free. eBay then, a couple of years after that, exited the Chinese market. They could not compete. Alibaba instead, where you see a lot of marketplaces in the United States and Europe, they charge, they monetize as a percent of the transaction, take a kind of percent of the GMV. Um, You know, we call it take rate. Instead, what Alibaba's model was is it was free marketplace transacting, and then they launched an ad business much longer before, much sooner than or Amazon. Amazon launched their ad business, you know, decades into the marketplace um, lifecycle. Instead, Alibaba launched ads. You know, within five years of inception of the business, right? Because they needed a way to monetize and they they had now set consumer and, and producer expectation that they were not going to charge seller or, or you know fees on the transaction. Because Alibaba would say, here, talk to each other, call each other, text each other, whatever <clears throat> we're gonna be the central watering hole for everyone to find each other and transact. And then they needed to figure out a way to monetize, so they went ads. Enter Ant. Now, then you start to get as as Taobao and and some of these uh, Taobao is the name of one of you know the um, or is one of the names of Alibaba's product marketplaces. Um, so, to say as Taobao scaled, then um, you had fraud, you had payment issues. You know, you'd have sellers that agreed to transact, but then the money never came, and so you had all these issues. So. That was the genesis of Ant Financial. Um, it was basically like an escrow account that you, as the buyer, you put your money into the Ant escrow account, and um, and then you know once you verify you've received the products from the seller, now the money goes to the seller. Problem solved. And Ant would charge a fee for these kind of escrow payment services, and so this was the. Um, Genesis of Ant Financial. So it was essentially a spin out, and then eventually they spun it out of Alibaba. And if we look at some of the ownership stakes here, um, you'll see you basically have this blue is Alibaba ownership and Ant employees, including Jack Ma. I think Jack Ma owns about 10% of, you know, Alibaba founder Jack Ma owns about 10% of um, uh, um, of Ant. So the blue are Alibaba and Ant employees. Blue is employees. Um, Alibaba owns about thirty three percent. That's the orange, and then you have some other shareholders in red and investors. Alibaba spawned Ant and has a material equity stake about thirty three percent. If the company is worth you know three hundred billion dollars now, they got a hundred billion dollar you know uh, um, ownership stake in Ant. Pretty good return. So. Let's go back to more about what actually is Ant and what do they do. We wrote a very good article back in 2019, March 2019. It's called How Ant Financial Became the Largest Fintech in the World. Um we basically cataloged the multiple platform businesses and uh, and there's some linear businesses in Ant Financial. So let me give you the recap here. Basically, you know, you have this kind of payment escrow platform. That's that's where it all started. You know, they I think that's pretty much called, kind of called Alipay today. Um, just like a payment platform Think that is like Venmo. Uh, and, but, you know, is doing much larger transactions for, for this kind of business payment escrow service. So in 2017, Alipay had over 700 million users and $8 trillion U.S. dollars worth of transactions. That's a lot of money. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of money. This is a payment platform monopoly in China. If you if you think about why this happened, you know, Aunt Ali Pay was able to go into rural parts of China and um and solve a lot of payment issues in 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 places that didn't have good infrastructure, but now with a cell phone and a QR code, you could transact. And so, you know, basically they skipped over if you think about. You see this in Africa a lot. A lot of these kind of emerging market countries that don't have this incumbent infrastructure, uh, like this thing called credit card terminals. There were no credit cards in China, um, or the the only credit card that was there was basically sanctioned by like the China State Bank and had very low penetration, very low usage. But you didn't really have Visa, Mastercard, and all these U.S. Uh, credit card companies everywhere. So you had very low penetration of some kind of You know, modern payment system, and Alipay filled that void. There really are no credit cards in China, um, or very, very minuscule uh, presence. It's really all kind of these payment platform models. By the way, Visa and Mastercard and Amex are both are are, all of them are in plat. They are some of the the oldest um, platform businesses as public companies right now. Very strong businesses, but they are payment platforms. So you know, this really was a, a big miss, a big issue for Visa MasterCard Amex. But hmm, ask yourself, why couldn't Visa MasterCard or Amex do business in China? Oh, that's right. Tech protectionism helped lead to the success of China's tech monopolies. Full stop. Tech protectionism in China helped keep A. U.S. tech monopolies from coming in to China, like credit card companies, to help basically not compete against things like Alipay or Alibaba, um, and and this we can or you know social networks, Tencent, right? You know all these things, WeChat. So the list goes on and on and on. Now I'm not saying tech protectionism is a bad thing. We cover this a lot on the show, but the point is there's nothing wrong with having reciprocity. If there's tech protectionism in China. There can be tech protectionism in the United States, and that's called fair. So anyway, back to Ant. So starts with payment platform. Then they start to add in other things, insurance marketplace. There are over 80 insurance companies on the platform. This is from spring of 2019, and that reaches over 400 million users. Okay, insurance marketplace. Um. Ant fortune has democratized asset management and retirement planning. All of China's 116 fund managers are on the platform that reaches 180 million users. So now you have, um, investing, you have insurance and just wait, here's, here's the linear, this thing called Yu It's called it's Chinese for leftover treasures. It's ants money market fund. It's now the largest money market fund in the world. With 251 billion dollars, this was again uh, 18 months ago, and um, it's the largest money market fund in the world. So this is a linear fund, right? And then they have a a uh, they have an, an investment platform for um, other you know fund managers on on the marketplace. Um, and uh, but but they also have their linear. Alipay has or Ant Financial has their linear. Uh, fund offering. What else do they have? They started with loan marketplaces. So they started with loan marketplaces. They had these linear micro and SME lending arm. They're taking on riskier loans and passing the risk on. They're basically securitizing these loans and selling them off. The Chinese government cracked down on this. Um, there was fraud. They also have a peer to peer lending platform, which had issues with fraud called. Jiao, Chai Bao, something. And um, so they have different lending offerings as well. Um, Ant is doing some linear lending today, but they also do have a network of third-party lenders. Um, similarly to that kind of investing model, they have a linear offering and then they have a, a marketplace of you know fund managers for investing or uh, lenders for, for a loan marketplace. You have to treat your peer-to-peer lending offering different than your SME and kind of business lending. Those are those are very different types of products, and different types of you know lenders or investors you know would would look at those differently. Um, so, but and also has lending. Uh, it came under fire a number of years ago because of the Chinese government, and they put and they basically started to rein in the marketplace side of the lending marketplace. As a result of that and have now rejigged it they've they've kind of moved to have more institutional lenders on the marketplace as opposed to more of these alternative lenders and i think have have kind of catered less to some of the riskier loans um, and have moved kind of more upstream with what they've done with lending just in general and with the marketplace as as a result of that regulation um but you know the marketplaces are still Chugging along strong. Now this is a and this is another article on kind of the you know the recent stats, right? So we were saying they had 700 million users um, in 2017. I guess now they have a billion Alipay users. So it's it's strong growth. the 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 key thing from this article is that on 10 billion dollars in revenue, they say they're making three billion dollars in profit, which is crazy. Um, and that is just for the first six months of 2020. So you got a $20 billion business top line revenue that's making, you know, five, six billion dollars in profit. That's bonkers. 43% of its revenue comes from the digital payment and merchant services. They handled now $17 trillion worth of transactions. And so this is basically, you know, this is that escrow. This is the payment platform. You know, now you're using Alipay to pay all your bills, all these things. So, you know, this is really the, the core of the business is where the business started initially right from that alibaba kind of taobao integrations and um is still the you know the core platform business monopoly they have easily 70 plus percent market share of of just payment transactions in china which is crazy um so you know then the other revenue comes from what they call their digital finance technology platform which collects technology service fees from banks asset managers and insurance companies to make loans, sell mutual funds, insurance, and other products. So, pretty much all those different platform businesses that we just went over are right here. And said its consumer and small business lending platforms had $300 billion in credit balance and its wealth management platform facilitated $600 billion worth of investments as of June 30th. I guess that's also for six months. Most of the loans have been funded by banks that the company partners with, right? So, this is Loan Marketplace. But again, I think these are less risky loans than they've done in the past. But still, you got a. um, I don't have the split right here between what's consumer lending and what's small business lending, but you've got a, you know, um, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of loan marketplace here. I think they're still taking relatively little risk and debt on their balance sheet to provide these loans. Um, They're taking some, but again, predominantly this is all off balance sheet marketplace type business model business it's a very strong very very strong company you know i think i think the question for ant long term is just are they going to be able to expand outside of china right i mean and i think in 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 countries that western countries countries that um are uh kind of now joining this us european and parts of Southeast Asia, um, and, and, and Japan, you know, just countries that are, are now starting to clamp down on, um, the unfettered access of Chinese tech companies into, into their, you know, into their country's, uh, tech scene. Um, that is going to be a real limiting factor, India. Um, so that, you know, I think, for me, when I look at Ant Financial just on the basis of being able to grow in China, there's plenty of growth that they can have in China. I think you know their growth internationally, as we are seeing wholesale across the board for just broadly Chinese tech monopolies, is all coming into question. Um, and you know, frankly, rightly so. So, Ant Financial, great business, great platform business. Um, on the Flip side of things, retail bankruptcies. Every week there's a new retail bankruptcy, unfortunately. Um, there's a good article here just putting some nice diagrams together of all the uh, different retail bankruptcies that are happening. It's just unfortunate to see, but you are seeing some retailers get acquired uh, from folks that you know want to try and relaunch the brand, maybe in an e-commerce type of fashion, but Check this out, CB Insights is a good little graphic here. This is in 2020. You can see, so these were, so January you have Fairway Grocery Store. Man, they needed to hold on a couple more months. Um, So March, these are some of the first victims. Can you see here? So March, Modell's, um, Art Van, April True Religion jeans, uh, May here you go a bunch right Gold's Gym, Neiman Marcus, uh, J Crew, Hertz, J C Penny, Advantage, Rent a Car, June you have twenty four hour fitness, G N C, Chuck E Cheese, July sur la table, tabla took French for a few years, but I've lost a lot of it. Um, Brooks Brothers, Lucky Brand, more jeans, I think. Um, Muji, you know, you got, uh, Asena retail group of apparel and accessories. They own Ann Taylor and Lane Bryant. They're going to close 1600 out of their 2800 locations. Um, this one, NY, New York and company, uh, they might close nearly all of their 400 stores. Simon Property is going to try and buy Brooks Brothers. So what's going to happen to all these retailers? You know, a lot of these retailers have to declare bankruptcy because they just can't pay their leases. And so they're using bankruptcy. Chapter 11 means you can come out of bankruptcy once you clear up your balance sheet and then you can relaunch the business. It means all the equity holders, for the most part, will lose their equity in the business. And then the... Uh, The uh, lenders, the debtors, you know, whoever's in first position is, you know, is going to have first claim over the assets and all these kinds of things. But, um, you know, at that point, you're you're not getting your money back as a lender. You're you're just divvying up whatever other assets the business has and splitting those up. But you're also going to negotiate with someone else that's going to come in and buy the business out of bankruptcy, most likely, or help to refinance the business and bring it out of bankruptcy. And that's where you have um, restructuring firms, these advisory firms that do what's called restructuring. So you're going to restructure the business, clean up the cap table, and uh, recapitalize the business. So these brands, what are they going to do? You know, you have brand, you have brand recognition. There is value in that. You have products that consumers like. There is value in that. What was the thing weighing them down? Retail and no e commerce or very little e commerce presence or capability. So, I think what you're going to have happen, and if I'm Amazon, if I'm Walmart, and and you're actually already seeing kind of Amazon put some of this into motion around clothing and apparel and accessories and all these businesses that had big retail presences that are basically now just destroyed, they are going to go to Amazon, whether or not they like it or not. They have brand recognition, they have products that consumers want, clearly. The problem was the business was turned upside down because the way they would distribute their product was heavily weighted towards retail and you have these very expensive leases. So now with the leases go away and you have maybe you know, 40% of the store presence that you used to have or possibly 10% of the store presence that you used to have, what are you going to do? You're going to sell your stuff online through e-commerce, through marketplaces. It's going to happen. Um, so... It'd be interesting to see, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of issues that these brands have. They don't, you know, they kind of want some brand segmentation. They don't want to just be packed in, especially the luxury uh, apparel, good brands. They don't want to be lumped in with all the other kind of regular brands on Amazon and, you know, all this kind of infighting and preferences and all that. So, so there are things that need to be accounted for, but product marketplaces are going to be a winner. Absolutely. Uh these these retailers, these brands, as they come out of bankruptcy, um, are going to have to figure out, you know, how to uh how to sell digitally. Now, that means these are that, those are for the the brands that have retail stores, right? Um, these like gene companies and that kind of stuff. But if you are this Sur La Tabla company and you're you you were really a retailer of other products. That's a much different story. Maybe you have some product lines that consumers identify with, but it's a very different business. It's, it's going to be much harder to jumpstart that because the whole business was basically just, we are a retailer and now that's gone. So that's going to be a much more precarious thing to, to claw your way out from. Okay, last topic. Palantir. So what is Palantir? Um, Palantir was i think co-founded by a guy named Joe Lonsdale uh and Peter Thiel Peter Thiel everyone knows Peter Thiel uh PayPal co-founder you know like earliest investor in Facebook guy's an iconic uh tech investor and entrepreneur um huge libertarian big libertarian um, so so much of a libertarian and i think he's a big Tolkien fan he actually started a VC firm Called Mithril, Mithril Capital, named after like Mithril in Lord of the Rings. Um, very quirky dude, amazing guy though. And Palantir cut its bread on 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 you know I think one of their claim to fame is that they helped um, you know build the technology and the AI and the machine learning uh, uh, algorithms that helped catch Osama bin Laden right? That were just, they have, they built, they cut their, you know, they cut their teeth on providing this technology to help defense agencies, um, you know, mine through just these, just, I don't even know, it's beyond terabytes, whatever's past terabyte, just infinite amount of data. The NSA is storing, that the CIA is storing, FBI. How do you search through all this stuff and make sense of it? Palantir. Now Palantir is working with more commercial companies as well and, you know, a bunch of other companies, but, but they really cut their teeth in, in, in the defense, in the government agencies, spying agencies world. Um, And they don't, it's not a platform business. You know, it's a software business with a heavy consulting uh, dynamic. So, you know, you're, you're kind of using their tech, it's kind of like IBM, in that regard, you know, if you think about IBM and um, what's their thing? Watson. That's what it is. Google didn't even find it for me. Google's slow. Watson. Kind of like Watson ish, but not as publicly advertised like IBM does it. But you have IP. And then you have, frankly, a bunch of consultants that are going into these companies and doing these very uh, kind of mission critical software implementations. And uh, that technology is going to unlock insights and machine learning and intelligence and all these things. Right, the power of data. That is Palantir. Uh, I think they they had like a twenty billion dollar valuation a few years ago, um, and now they're filing to IPO uh, in you know in September once once everyone gets back from vacations. So. What's interesting, though, with with uh, with this guy Alex Karp, who's the I think co-founder and CEO. Yeah, there's a few co-founders of this company, but Alex is the CEO. And um, there's a cool interview. Palantir CEO issues blistering critique of Silicon Valley's engineering elite ahead of IPO. We've spoken before on the show about how there is some—it's weird, you know—trepidation and and this hesitancy. On behalf of our u s. tech monopolies, to work with the Department of Defense and build technology with them, um, like working with the Department of Defense is bad, and um I don't know it's just it's a very problematic thing, right? You know, uh like I get flack on the show for saying that there's nothing wrong with promoting American tech companies and trying to have policies that help American tech companies at the expense of say Chinese tech companies, like what's going on with TikTok, for example, you know, why is that a bad thing? Um, There's, there's nothing wrong with a sense of nationalism and wanting to uh, help businesses or, 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 you know, help your country. Um, and if you're a foreign tech company and you want to and you want to launch a business in the United States, having rules around having you know uh, employees based here, you want to manufacture products here this i don't see what's wrong with that, but there's this kind of weird sense of if if i'm a tech company and i help and and by the way it 's not like you're doing free work the u s government is paying you to uh, you know to help do these deployments and build the software capability out so Um, you know, this is what Alex says, the engineering elites of Silicon Valley may know more than most about building software, but they do not know more about how society should be organized or what justice requires. He once criticized the increasing tolerance and monoculture of Silicon Valley. Guy doesn't like Silicon Valley. You want to know who else left Silicon Valley? Peter Thiel. Um, he went down to LA and, um, Yeah, this idea of this increasing intolerance and monoculture of Silicon Valley. Um, so, So this was interesting. It goes deeper into the video, which you don't need to watch. But here are the highlights. I've had my favorite employees yell at me. He said, I've had some of my favorite employees leave. This is because some of CARP's own staff were unhappy with Palantir signing a contract with ICE. I had people protesting me. People protesting me, some of whom I think asked really legitimate questions. I've asked myself, if I were younger at college, would I be protesting me? And you know, it depends. The most valid criticism that they have is essentially that if you're involved in anything, that one instance of injustice, does it tarnish all instances of justice? You know, the question is, is there anything wrong with helping provide technology to our government agencies? And should US tech companies? Um, hesitate to work with our US agencies, ICE in this case for Palantir. We've seen Google um, withdraw from contracts with the the Pentagon, with the Department of Defense, despite what Sundar likes to say. Not very good at avoiding questions. He just kind of gives non-answers, but Google's done it. There's clearly precedent of it. There's clearly documentation of it. Google's still working with the Department of Defense, but I mean, it's Google, so you're going to obviously have some contracts that are still going. But to act like U.S. tech companies don't um, have a reticence to work with the government is just, you know, asinine and, and frankly, um, you know, disrespectful to, to, like, to just the general public's intelligence. I guess these U.S. tech companies are asking themselves this. You know, I guess one of the challenges that they probably encounter is. you have, I mean, these are global companies. These are global. These are U.S. tech companies, but with you know employees from all around the world. Everyone's got a bunch of different opinions. It really comes down to the leadership to to try and figure out what's right and what's wrong. And unfortunately, you're seeing U.S. tech leadership, I think, go in the wrong direction. Um, and if you think that you know not helping out the U.S. government is admirable. But instead, trying to do business in China is okay. Uh, Yeah, there are serious, (laughs) very, very serious uh, hypocrisy in those actions. And we've actually seen Google do exactly that. We've seen Google withdraw from working with the US government on contracts and instead try to go do business in China. Um, So, uh, you know, you just can't really make sense of it all. Uh, It's just uh, very odd, very peculiar, um, where, you know, unfortunately, I think when when you look at, even though the US does have a lot of issues, particularly with agencies spying on American citizens, um, if you talk about, for example, the Five Eyes, this intelligence sharing apparatus amongst five. Five kind of Western countries, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, United Kingdom, and the US. And basically what they do is, you know, US agencies are not allowed to spy on US citizens without warrants and all these things. So instead what they say is, hey, England, can you spy on Alex? Because, you know, we don't have a warrant to do it. But England, if you spy on Alex, we have intelligence sharing agreements. So now I can see what Alex is doing, but, but technically, you know, the CIA, the NSA, whoever it is, isn't spying on Alex. England is, but then the U.S. agency can get that data from England. But technically, the U.S. agency never spied on Alex and didn't break the rules. This is five eyes. And so there is a big problem in this country of U.S. agencies abusing their power, spying on American citizens. Um, and probably doing a bunch of other stuff that we don't even know about. That's a real issue. But, you know, when you take a step back and you, and you say to yourself, uh, and you look at China and you look at how these Chinese tech companies are basically an extension of the CCP that, you know, not only is the data being fed into the CCP, certainly their technology, their IP is working in very close relation with any kind of. You know, defense or or military department in China um, that's been well documented. So, you know, if you take a step back and you think about it on that scale, you got some very serious decisions to make. When you look at the broader kind of just this reckoning that's happening, where you have you have basically a a split. We've called it the splinter net. We've called it a variety of different things, but you have a split on the three main planes. That the U.S. and China operate on economically. Now we're seeing with tariffs and trade. Militarily, as we're seeing, China become an exporter of military equipment, and with technology, that's the third rung. Whether it's uh, uh, physical tech infrastructure like Huawei, um, or if it's now software technology like we're seeing with um, you know Grindr, TikTok, and and others, you are seeing a divide. Um, where you have kind of Western forces, democratic countries, um, capitalist countries, uh, countries that promote this thing called freedom, um, diverge from China. And, you know, the hope was on China that 20, 30 years ago, that we would invest in China, we would bring um, our businesses, we would, you know, bring our support, our financial support, we would give them access to Western markets. And then eventually China would open up. China would come to, you know, kind of embrace these Western ideals. And unfortunately, I think it's pretty clear that that has not happened. It's actually backfired pretty drastically. And uh, fortunately, everyone's starting to wake up, smell that coffee, and realize that um, we have a very serious competitor in China, one that conceptually is, is, is on a very different a uh, wavelength than what the U.S. and our other kind of Western democratic countries believe in just conceptually and um, from an ideal standpoint. And so that has brought us to this divisive plane across all these kind of three main uh, divisions. And it all harkens back to this idea of saying, well, why would a U.S. tech company feel comfortable working in China but then not feel comfortable working with the U.S. government. If you can figure that one out, let me know. But riddle me that. That's it for us today on Win or Take All. I like Palantir. I like Alex Karp. I like that he believes in something and stands for it and is not afraid to speak up. And I hope they do well in their IPO, even though they're not a platform business. I think, I think they do well and I think they will do well. And actually, you know what? What's funny is the guy's business benefits from the fact that the US tech monopolies are reticent to work with the US government. It actually is even better for him. But what he's doing is calling it out and saying, this is inappropriate. And, and it is inappropriate. I hope it changes. I just don't know if it will. That's it for us today on Winter Take All. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you later.